0: All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Trust your dopeness. This is episode seven. I hope I got that right. It might be six. I don't know. Uh, We'll figure this out when I upload it to production. Uh, But today with me, I've got another one of the fellas. We're continuing the fellas series going on. I've got Frankie Del Duca, current bobsled pilot for USA bobsled, former teammate of mine, very good friend. Uh, Also former track and field athlete at the college level and just overall good dude. Also current member of the army as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So if you've listened to the last two episodes, I've had some of the fellows on and that's just what we call like our group of friends from the bobsled world. Frankie is a part of that group, and just like with Carlo and with Jimmy, I'd like to start off. Just everyone has a kind of a different route on how they got into bobsled and how all of that happened. Um, Jimmy was the last episode that I had, and he kind of mentioned you guys were teammates in college, so your guys' like road into the sport was very similar. But we'll start off with there about uh, talk about like going from track and field. Well, let's talk about like what you did for track and field first and then how that led to you going into bobsled after.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like Jimmy said, we were teammates. Um, I was a short sprinter and a long jumper. Um, And yeah, I just had some some goals that I felt I didn't hit in in high school. So I did a, a bunch of different sports like a lot of people but I transferred to the University of Maine as a sophomore, and and had some goals to hit in in track. What, what's nice about track is it's a team sport, but also individual, similar to bobsled. Mm-hmm. So I, I I transferred, and um, you know I wanted to run ten point laser time. I did it hand timed in high school, but I wanted to do laser timed ten point, and then long jump twenty three feet. So I transferred to do that, and that's where I met Jimmy. And towards the end of our time at University of Maine, we had a coach that mentioned bobsled combines and that you can just go try out and that it's pretty well suited for just speed and power athletes, whether you're a sprinter, jumper, or like a halfback, that's kind of like his background was he was football and track. So as our coach, he kind of opened that door because I watched the Olympics and I watched bobsled and I thought it was really cool, but it kind of ended there because I didn't know how you could get involved. There's no collegiate bobsled. There's no, there's club, but not if you're not really close to a track. So for me, that door never opened as much as I thought as, as, as interested as I was watching. I never knew how they got into it. So once I knew that there was a combine, I said, shoot, I mean, I might as well try out and see what I can do, get a yes or a no. And uh, yeah, so, I, so Jimmy tried out right after school. I went home to help my dad open a restaurant. So I worked in the family business for um, a season. It's a seasonal business. And then I started doing my own little strength and conditioning work. I was a fitness specialist at a YMCA and but I was training because I really wanted to try out. So I tried out the following year and, uh, it was a snowball, man. Like I went to a combine and scored quite well. I think it was maybe second highest score. I think that that summer, maybe third. Um, and they were like, Hey, come to rookie camp. And I was like, great. (laughs) I'm all in. So I went back to the YMCA and I said, Hey, um, I think I'm going to try out for the USA bobsled team. (laughs) So yeah, I might, I might be back. I might not. I gave my, it was, it was well over two weeks notice, but I was like, if it goes well, I won't be back. And it, it was about a month away at that point. So I went down for the rookie camp and that's where, you know, you learn to push on the push track and all that. And it was seriously like rookie camp, rookie push champs, then um, after Rookie Push Champs, I got third. Um, and they were like, you can stay here for the next month for National Push Champs. You'll have room, board, all you can eat food. And I was like, I'm sold. Because at that time, I was only working part-time as a fitness specialist. I had student loans. And I had a couple friends that were really helping me out. They pretty much said, you can stay in our spare room. You can seriously pay whatever you're comfortable paying, like whatever that is. If you can't pay, you can't pay. You can give a couple hundred bucks. You give a couple hundred bucks. So I was sleeping on an old futon mattress on the floor in this spare room. Like, you know, when I heard I get this nice bed, <laughs> all I can, all I can eat food and a gym, like, dude, I was set. I was like, this is a, this is like such an opportunity. So I was on the push track all the time. I was crushing food. Um, I put on a few pounds and I actually did better at the national push champs. I I got second at national push champs, which obviously had the veteran athletes as well as the rookies that I competed against before. So it just showed how, how much I needed that. Like I needed that opportunity and I wasn't getting it back, you know, where I was staying with sleeping on a futon, not really eating right and all that stuff. So, It was really cool. I, I, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And just going back to that snowball reference, it was like that one month. And then it was one more month. We were on ice one more month. I was with the top pilot, Stephen Holcomb. We were out racing on the world cup and I was like, Holy smokes. Seriously. Three months ago, I was in the process of trying out. And then we go into team trials and now I'm on the world cup. And it was like, it was nuts. I remember at our first stop, I got off this flight and there were BMWs to pick us up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is going on? (laughs) What, what is going on? Like, I was just like working part time. Like we've already touched on this. You don't make any money doing bobsled, but my quality of life went up so much from what I came from just trying to get started in the professional world. Sometimes we get lucky you land a sick job. It pays really well. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was being a fitness specialist. I was helping people. I was coaching athletes and kids and being a mentor. I was doing what I wanted. It was just, I was starting a little, starting from the bottom, right. so to speak. So I was like, man, this is wild. Like, I'm really... This happened fast, you know. I was on the push track, trying out, trying to figure out what even to do, and now we're racing on the World Cup, trying to beat the best in the world and become the best in the world. So that's kind of like the long story of how I how I got involved in it. it um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a great time.
0: What year of the quad did you enter in when your rookie season?
1: My rookie year was the second season of a quad 2015-16. Okay.
0: And then for those who are unfamiliar with like we we call basically each Olympic period a quad. So as soon as one Olympics ends, there's a four-year period that goes until the next Olympics starts and that's called a quad. So that first year after the Olympics, we would call year 1, and obviously year 2 after the Olympics would be year 2 and then year 3 and then year 4, we call that the Olympic year because it's ending with the Olympics. So that's so coming in in year 2 of the quad means the Olympics had ended. They had already competed in one season and then Frankie came out after that season was over. So he was starting in year 2, which I would say is what where you would get most of the rookies is like those first 2 years of the quad and that's probably the biggest opportunity for rookies to have a chance to like get on a sled and race and not many people get to say their rookie year one that they placed at national push champs as a rookie but then two got to race with steve holcomb as a rookie as well which is also like that in and of itself is an accomplishment that you should be proud of and being able to do as a rookie to be on that guy's sled um talk about that a little bit about how it was like because i'm just relating this to my rookie season and i my rookie year we had a huge rookie class. There was a lot of people that retired. I think we had almost more rookies on the national team that year than we had veterans that came back. Um, and we also had ended up having three teams on the World Cup. So there was a lot of just spots open for everybody to get. And I remember my rookie season was very similar. Was like I came out for push champs, um, for rookie push champs. I think I got third in those And then I got invited back for national push champs. and I I think I got like eighth or something or ninth in those, so top 10. And then you do the team trials. But it was like one month was rookie. Next month was nationals. Next month after that, we were basically selected to the team, and we were getting ready to go to Germany and start the World Cup because that year it was going to end in North America. So we started our season off, and I'm just like, same thing. Like We get off a plane. Vehicles are ready for us. We had, like, they're just like, all right, pick up your vehicle, get your equipment, drive to this hotel, first race. And it was just like, this is so different than anything I've ever experienced. And then you're just all of a sudden, like, on the World Cup, trying to learn this sport at the highest level, being on the World Cup as a rookie, is not an easy thing. Like, my pilot that I was with my whole rookie year was was Olsen. And, I mean, you know how Olsen can be. He's a hard ass for... <laughs> Most of the time, like he's, he's basically a hard ass with moments of, oh, okay. He's not really a hard ass, but for most of the most part, he's a hard ass. And so I had a huge learning curve, my rookie year Holcomb, for those that don't know, Steve Holcomb is the best pilot who has ever piloted a bobsled, like hands down, just the greatest bobsled pilot to have ever done it. Regardless of if you follow the sport or not, and you might want to argue that like there's a German pilot that's be- He's not better than Holcomb. The reason he's as good as he is right now is because he's not going against Holcomb. Otherwise, he would not be doing as well as he's doing right now. So I'm going to shut those arguments down right now. <laughs> you guys can say he's the best ever. All the European people that have listened to the podcast before, they're going to be like, no, you know, this guy's way better. He's got more medals. Like That's because Holcomb's not racing. Otherwise, those medals would be on Holcomb's dresser right now. So you got to start off your rookie year racing and working with the best that's ever done it. What was that experience like being on his sled, learning from him, being on the World Cup that first year, everything?
1: Well, it, it started off with a quite a bit of stress um, just because it's trial by fire. It's just what you're explaining. You're just – it's. Rookie camp, straight into rookie push camp, straight into national push camp, straight into cool. You made a team. Now you're on the World Cup. So, you know, this whole time your body's getting used to pushing a sled. There's a few hundred pounds. Your hip flexors are getting tight. You can't even like touch them without you know you try to stretch your hips and you like <laughs> are wincing in pain. So, there's a lot of stress. Like, man, like I want this so bad. I've shown that I can do it pretty well, considering my um, experience and you just want to learn and learn and learn, but it is, it's a, it's a stressful environment, especially when you're, when you're new and trying to find where you fit, um, on a sled or, or just where, how you stack up, you know? So, Mm -hmm. and you've touched on it before where you, as a, as a push athlete, you do, you do know that you can be replaced. And at times, especially when you're trying to find where you fit, that's on your mind. Like, okay, I'm sick do I not push and risk getting replaced or do I push maybe it's not good and I risk getting replaced? Those are questions that I asked myself like a few weeks into the sport. Um, But, but Steve was very compassionate. I remember I still have the phone that I had back then. I'll never get rid of it. He messaged me and said, Hey, we really like what you're doing. Take your time to come back and you'll be okay. Like, as long as you're pushing the way you were, you'll be fine. Don't worry. Um, So it was nice to have that. Um, Steve didn't... He, at times, didn't say a lot. He he was kind of... He was a man of few words at, at, at times. But then sometimes he would really... He would take you under his wing, or he would have a conversation with you, and he would talk a lot. And that was one of those times where him reaching out really helped. And then he spoke to me as I was coming back and was like, this is what you're doing. This is good. This is not good. He was a really, he was a really good mentor. So it was, it was nice. Um, Well, obviously when you make, when you make the top sled, (laughs) it's nice. But at the same time, it was nice to have that type of person around you where yes, the expectations are extremely high from the federation, the coaches and, but also ourselves. So it matched because I didn't try out to just try out. Like I want to be as good as I can possibly be. That's how most, I think people that push themselves and all that, this is how you work. That's just how, how you operate. So it was nice. It, it, It definitely took a lot of energy. Um, but it was really, really nice. Um, I will say, though, too, being on the top sled and having those expectations and getting like, what is it, four to six reps a week Mm -hmm. when you only have a handful of reps coming in the sport, it's kind of, um, it's a lot because we had some results where we pushed really quite well. We pushed um, 79 in Park City, and we were like stoked me Carlo and McGuffey and going back to your, your point of having a lot of rookies, almost rookies outnumbering the vets that sled was a second year athlete and two rookies. So expectations were very high, but our experience was quite low. Um, but it was great. We had some, we had some good results. I think all things considered, um, Holcomb and Carlo won the Lake Placid World Cup, which was incredible to witness. We got a handful of like sevenths. You know, we were in the top 10, but we weren't in the top, top in the four man. Right. Um, and then, and then two man, I mean, Holcomb just did his thing and Carlo is a, a great pusher. And um, yeah, they really took care of business. And to your point about just how good Steve was. I remember us going down Whistler and we just didn't, I heard all this crazy. Yeah. They don't do four man and Whistler. It's too dangerous. Cause when, when we went that, my, my uh, rookie quad, my rookie year, that was the quad that they didn't even do four man and Whistler. So I was like, man, this is going to be a wild track. Sweet. We didn't touch a thing. I was like, okay, <laughs> sweet. And then we went to St. Moritz, which is you're driving for over a minute. And I was like, we didn't touch a wall. I was a rookie. So it wasn't like I could really feel everything. Right. But just as I went down, I was like, this guy, like I really, you could, you knew that you were in the presence of, of someone who was truly special, truly great. Right. And, um, I don't think anybody took that lightly in the federation. And I don't think people took that lightly. Our, um, you know, our friends and competitors from all over the world he was very respected, still is. And, um, yeah, it was just really, it was awe inspiring to be on his sled. Um, it was just, it was just incredible.
0: That's awesome. Um, so you come in year two, You have basically three years as a brakeman prepping for trying to make the Olympic team and explain, I guess, like year one and year two are probably pretty similar in terms of like the experience, like you're on world cup, you're racing that first experience with going through an Olympic year and trying to like make the team for the Olympics being your third year in the sport and everything. What was that year like for you?
1: Yeah, um, well, so you want me to talk about Olympic year?
0: Yeah, for your first quad. Okay,
1: right, okay. Yeah, so um, leading up to that, I had a mixture of results. We had some top five starts on the World Cup. I also had some some pretty poor performances. Um, And then, so push champs for Olympic year, everybody's just psyched to the moon. Right. You have you have people that are trying back out. Um, Steve Langton came out. Chris Fote came out, which are other American legends, and I mean, really, just legends in the sport. They're they're looked up to by by many. Um, we had uh, Tyson Gay came out. So we had oh Ryan Bailey. We had a bunch of people come out. Just just like just, dude, it was
0: stacked. It oh was, yeah, like people that have. Tyson Gay, former 100-meter world record holder, <laughs> yeah. Dan Bailey, fucking yeah. Olympic sprinter and everything like, yeah, no problem.
1: Yeah, it was it was stacked, man. I mean, it's it's it seems to always be stacked Olympic year, but yeah, that was like it was really cool. Um so yeah, everyone's just psyched up. And I do okay, I honestly don't even remember what I placed. Um I really don't. It it was I would say, I do remember it was kind of in the middle of the the competitive group, but not the top group.
0: Right. I was
1: kind of in the mix. That's the way to word it. Just in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So combos come around. That was solo push champs, champs, which, by the way, if you can figure this out now that we're talking about it, please figure out why I push fast solo on the push track and then. Don't push fast solo on ice and in combos on the push track, I'm in the mix, but in combos on ice, I contribute to, to good sleds. So if you can crack that code, please tell me I've been in the sport eight years, can't figure it out.
0: Bob sled is a sport. That's never going to make sense. There, <laughs> From my experience in the sport, like you could take the top three pushers, and the next just random three, and that top three doesn't mean they're gonna be the fastest. Like, you can put all three of them on the same right. sled and have them push. That doesn't mean they're gonna be the fastest group. A lot of times, it just comes down to do you, like, for, for whatever reason, and like, I never was able to put on it. Like, if you can just click with the guys that are with you, you're gonna push better than if you just push with the next best guy. Like, if it, what for whatever reason that works in the sport of bobsled. Very rarely do you just go, he's fast, he's fast, he's fast, that's going to be a fast sled. I've seen this happen many times where it's like, all right, this guy's fast, this guy's fast, this guy's fast, we're going to put him on the sled, they go out and push. And then you got three dudes that just get along, they will go out there and work their ass off for each other, and then they end up pushing better than who you would expect to happen. And For whatever reason, bobsled works that way, so... That code I think is never gonna. That's Da Vinci's code. That's never gonna be cracked. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I have some some hunches and theories as well, but yeah, that's very true too. So, so yeah, so combos roll around, and I'm like in no, no combos, um, and I'm just kind of like blown away. Um, oh no, sorry, I skipped ahead. We they had two person combos, and. I went with um, a couple different people and everyone had their fastest combo with me. Now I didn't go with the fastest people. So it's easier to say, right. you know, we didn't have the fastest time, but we had some times that were, that were pretty good. Right. So once again, just in the mix, I am not one of the best, but I am in the mix of pretty competitive, you know, mid somewhat competitive tier uh, pushes. That's kind of the best way I think I can word it. Um, and then there's three person combos. I'm not in any any three person combos. I'm like, what is going on? And I, I went to the the star coach at the time. He didn't really give me an answer. I'm like, I don't I don't get it. Like I'm in these I was put in these combos in two two person and then three person not any. Then they put me in three person combos. And it was fine. It was, you know, we did pretty good and it was, you know, a good time. And then when I'm getting when I'm reaching out for like team trials and stuff. Nobody has me in the sled for team trials. Nobody has me in their own combos. That's what it was. I wasn't in any pilot's own combos. Okay. Um, so I'm like, what? I don't get it. Like no, like nobody wants to slide with me. Nobody like what? Yeah, I was, I was perplexed. I was like, what did I do? You know, like who did did I make someone mad or did, am I? I think I'm good enough to to at least maybe maybe get on a USA three and, and see what we can do or a USA four and see if we can qualify. But I was on nobody's sled like nobody's. So I was like, I was doing some deep reflecting. like, okay, yes, I have had, I had one performance in particular that I think was, was just going to always stick with me as a negative. And I was like, man, yeah, we did. I, I dropped the ball that day, but I was just, dude, I just flipped this switch. I was so mad. I went into the weight room in Winsport in Calgary. I was so mad. My power clean personal best at the time was 150 kilos. I know that that's like comical to you, but that's, (laughs) that's what, that's, that's what it was. It was 150 kilos. I walked into the gym and I said, I am not leaving this gym until I power clean 160 kilos. (laughs) I'm not, and you're, you're right to laugh because that's stupid. (laughs) You know, my, my, yeah. Anyways. Um, but I walked in that gym. I had just that look in my eye and I was like, I'm not leaving this gym until 160 kilos goes from the floor to my chest. Um, and I did it. So I don't know. I just was, it was a different, I, it, it just, it sparked something in me that I, I probably hit away Where I was, you compete for different reasons. Sometimes it's your outlet and you, and you like let that beast out every now and then for a while I was competing, man, I'm happy. Like, this is cool. You know, I've worked through all my demons. It's all good. And then that happened. And I was like, that's it. I'm just, I'm steamrolling whatever obstacle I can. And I just made them up 160 kilos. So that happened. Um, and I still, I wasn't on a sled and and look, I, I don't, it was a lot of really great athletes. It's not like I'm saying I was, you know, screwed out of anything. I was, I was just disappointed that I wasn't even looked at at all. Cause if, if, if I kind of look at some things, I'm like, dang, you know, someone could have used me maybe. Right. I mean, shoot. Um, so anyways, I still not picked up on a, on a sled. And then, uh, that kind of like rage, that inner rage is still like spewing. And I'm in the weight room in Lake Plaza, just crushing myself just to like stay sane, crushing myself in the weight room. I'm just like throwing up weight because I'm like, well, team trials are coming along. I don't know. I don't remember exactly when it was. It was two weeks out, three weeks out. I'm like, I have time. I am going to let off some steam. And I'm also just going to make sure that I'm in the best shape. So if anyone needs me, I can contribute because I'm not leaving. I'm not going home. Someone might need me. I've worked this hard for this long. And if, if the team ever needs me, I will be ready. So I'm just training super hard. I'm sore as all else. And I get this text, Good luck in the uh good luck in the race off tomorrow. And I'm like, What? They're <laughs> <laughs> so like, Yeah, you're racing off Adrian for Jeff's sled. And I'm like, What? So I hit up Jeff, I'm like, Jeff, we got a race off? He's like, Yeah, you're gonna race off Adrian. And I'm like, Okay, good to know. I just did like three by five as heavy as I could in squats, but yeah, sweet. So tomorrow, <laughs> so the next day we go out. I win the race off, um, and at the time, what I pushed on the push track was one hundredth slower than what Ryan Bailey pushed on the push track from the left side. So, once again, please tell me how I go kind of quick <laughs> on the push track, and then I'm just like whatever, mediocre solo. On ice. So anyway. so I get on Jeff's sled and we go through the year. We're, we're trying to be like that third sled, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to have that quota of three and also get the points to be the third.
0: And you guys were on um, NAC.
1: On NAC. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah. And that's what everyone's doing. That's not on the top sled or two. You're all just trying to be be the sled that can get the points or, you know, earn that third spot or, or be that third sled. So right. yeah. we're working hard. It was, yeah, it was Brent Fote, myself and Nick Taylor. Um, we worked really well together. We did our best to make Jeff, Jeff's life just driving, make his life easy. And then we encouraged each other, but also pushed each other. Um, probably deep down knowing that we, we need to be at our best at all times to even have a chance. Right. And then, and then also there is a chance that maybe one person gets called up or two people get called up and not all three. Right. And I think, I think truthfully that we were all okay with that because we were going to do our best and let the cards fall where they, where they may. Yep. Um, so it was, I would say, you know, all things considered, it was, we did the best we could and it was, um, it was a tough season. We, we all crashed in Whistler and two man um, and going over at 90 plus miles an hour Never is fun. not comp. No, it's not comfortable. Um, I bruised my hip and got a pretty gnarly concussion. Um, I had a limp for weeks and yeah, I got pretty well smoked. So, um, yeah, I kind of battled through all that through the season and just pushing and pushing and pushing and, Um, long story short, we didn't make it. Nick Taylor was named an alternate. Um, Brent and I didn't, didn't make it in any capacity. And uh, I I saw the writing on the wall. Um, and you know, for me, I, I knew that I think everything would have had to have gone right for me to have made it. I would have had to have, I don't know, like not have those bad days every now and then, like you take a race and maybe it's just, it just doesn't go your way. Sometimes you can show up and you're just the dog and you make it happen. And then sometimes it just doesn't happen. And it just, so for me, it was really hard, but I, I wasn't like, I wasn't like super angry or anything like that. I I saw reasons why I could have either made it or at the very least just gotten more opportunity. I was bummed that I really wasn't looked at at all, but I wasn't like super angry or anything. I was pretty bummed. I I'm after the, I, you know, I watched the games and all that. And afterwards I was pretty bummed just because you're kind of like, where, where did I go wrong? At least I was, I know that maybe some people would say that that's not really healthy, but I was just kind of like, I was really trying to figure it out because you train so hard seven days a week. Well, you're not training seven days, but you know what I mean? 24 seven. This is your life. Every, every thought you have has to be filtered through. How does this affect me with bobsled? Like birth, birthday parties, uh, funerals, holidays, you're, you're filtering your obligations on, how does it affect me and the team. Oh, and that's how I was. I wasn't wasn't perfect but I did what I thought was my best. So dude, I like locked myself in my room. I had 13 motor scooters and I <laughs> tore them all down. <laughs> tore them all down to the bare frame every nut and bolt and completely rebuilt 13 because that's I'm, I'm not like a business guy. I don't really know how to run a business if I'm being honest, but I have like that entrepreneurial inch entrepreneurial um instinct or interest and it's been since i was a little kid like i used to make paper wallets and sell them on the playground so yeah i i I just tore down these motor scooters it was like my my um therapy i guess yeah so to speak i'm just and that's all i did um so and it was all good you know but i i also i always knew that i wanted to drive because for me that's just it's so hard to explain. And if, if someone else is interested in driving, they'll know what I mean. Or if, if there's something that just gets people, um, it's like when you're in this, you're just in this zone, that's, it's unattainable anywhere else. It's, right. it's, I, I'm going to sound crazy talking about it. Cause I'm, I'm crazy about it. It's like, it's a direct link to my soul. It just makes me, it makes me me it's makes it makes me who i am but it makes it's a thrill and this this sensation that i can't even explain it to you man it's like it's total euphoria yeah so um so i knew i wanted to drive since i first got in the sport they asked me like what's your background and i said well i did a bit of ski racing and i did some um some car racing i did autocross which is like grassroots um auto racing it's really cool if anyone's interested in, in driving, learning learning performance driving. Um, it's a really great thing to get involved with. Uh, it's very similar to Bob said. You walk the course, and then you race it. You pick your lines, and you go. So that's Olympic year, and I'm kind of already segueing into my driving, but I don't want to skip ahead
0: too much. No, that was great. Like, you touched on a lot of things there. I think a lot of people go through, especially high-performing, high output athletes like guys that are at like the top and trying to make it to like the absolute tip of whatever sport that they're in they have some sort of demon or they have some sort of fuel and usually what they do is they take the negative and they use that as fuel in their life and or in their sport so they whatever negative is happening throughout their life or whatever they're perceiving is negative output just in general they take that internalize it and then they take it into their training and they take it into their sport and they use that and that's exactly what you said like when you had your demons and you just wanted to fucking clean 160 even though like it wasn't going to do anything for your pushing or like it wasn't going to make like oh if you clean 160 that means you're guaranteed to drop a 10th off your push time like that was just you using the energy that you felt from not being put in combos and taking that energy and putting it into the weight room and using that as an outlet. And I think a lot of high performing athletes have something in their life that they use that way, whether they know that they're using it that way or, or not. There's like from just people that I've spoken with and whether it be a collegiate level, professional level, whatever sport, there's always something in there that they can internalize and use for fuel. And you use that in a way to kind of like blow off steam and, try to do your best the rest of the season and make it to Olympics. You didn't end up getting selected to the team, but you knew that your passion was going to be driving and you knew that was going to be the next step. So that first quad ends Olympic year or the Olympics happen. And then at what point did you decide like, all right, I'm done being a brakeman and now I want to go like full blown into being a pilot. And was it like the right after the Olympics were over or was there like a period of time where you kind of had to adjust and, and make that move slower?
1: No. Um, it was actually during Olympic year. Um, I kind of knew I was like, uh, ah, you know, I, I'm just not on the trajectory to, to make the Olympic team or to be competitive enough to make the Olympic team. So, um, there was a driving school, it was like in the middle of the season. I think it was December, maybe mid-December or so, and it was in between North America's Cups, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I should remember this stuff. It's a stressful. It's a stressful season. Sometimes <laughs> you just you put on the you put on the blinders.
0: You just you, you know just go all I'm out. Supposed and, to be here at this time. Okay, I'll be there.
1: Yeah, and then the dust settles, and you're like, "Whoa, what just happened?" Right. So, yeah, yeah. So I went to a driving school in Park City. And that was actually where there was a, there was a few other people that tried driving as well. Um, we all, it was, um, Josh Williamson Yep, was there. Um, Chris Walsh was there. I want to say Sam was there too. If Sam wasn't there. Then it was Lake Placid that we started. Guth? Um, which
0: Sam? No, Sam Miller Miller. Okay.
1: Dude, I want to say it was him, or it, we went to the Lake Placid one together after, maybe that's what it was. But um, yeah, it was it was really cool. Um, Park City is like a pretty quick track, if you look at the average speed for the duration of the track. But it's pretty smooth, so it's nice to learn there. And so we um, had...
0: Unless you six, don't have a left earring.
1: Yeah, if you don't have a left D ring. Oh, man. Yeah. We'll get into that. We'll later. get into that. That was, yeah, that was, geez. So, yeah, we went and Josh Williamson, I was Josh Williamson's one and only brakeman. I will just put that out there.
0: Yeah, okay. Um,
1: we, yeah, so we learned to drive together. Um, we had six days, I think it was. And so a couple days lower start, a couple days a little bit higher. And then the last couple days, Um, I was just like walking it off the top, like trotting and getting in. Um, and I was just, I mean, hooked. I was absolutely hooked. Um, so that was that I kind of knew that I wanted to, um, I kind of want, I knew I wanted to drive as soon as I could. And something that I found kind of funny was my first run from the top. Like I, I went, it was just a ton of fun. And, um, someone told me that the announcer was like, Shauna, uh, do you see that? <laughs> Cause it was a pretty smooth run. <laughs> so I think the dude's name is, R- I think the dude's name is RJ. He just was like, <laughs> like, he was just kind of like, what, like, that was kind of a good run. Aren't you supposed to be like crashing? <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was pretty funny. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, And I actually did a, a, at the end of, at the end of, um, the season, they would sometimes do driving schools for like national team athletes. And I did a really abbreviated driving school in a sled from like the sixties that didn't articulate and had an open cowling my rookie year for like a week. And I knew I was hooked. I was like, dude, I can't wait. Like I'm going to learn the sport. I'm going to, I'm going to become the best push athlete I can be, learn the ins and outs of the sport and then just dive into driving. So that was always the plan. So that was when I first started. It was like December of Olympic year. And then um, then I went in just like head first as soon as I really knew that I was... As soon as the Olympic team was named, really, I was just like, I'm, I am I am a driver. At least I'm going to try to be a driver. I'm going to do all I can to be a driver. Right. So, right.
0: so you go from being a brakeman, Olympic year, transitioning into a pilot. And then before you actually... Did you do... An NAC season or anything before you decided you wanted to do WCAP, or did you do WCAP and then come back and actually have your first full season as a pilot? No, I
1: did. A, I did my first full season as a pilot um, on the NAC, most of which was done with Sam Miller, who was driving monobob, learning to drive um, two man later on, and then and then he was a push athlete for me, so he was kind of doing everything. So we did that. We went to Calgary. Went to um, Park City and Lake Placid. Um, and it was, it was awesome. So yeah, it was, it was just, it was awesome. I think we got fourth overall on the NAC and never went to Whistler. So it, it was cool. Um, Carlo came out and slid with me. He mentioned that in his, um, oh, that podcast. Is, I yeah. slid with. Oh, it was so cool. Dude. I, I like, that. I, I had been driving for like a couple weeks this dude's an Olympic caliber push athlete and he's willing to get in the sled with this new guy. He's I'm like, like you yeah, know, I have like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, I have like 18 runs on my life. Right. Or I have like whatever, 20 something runs. So, um, but it's yeah, Park it, was, City. it was cool. I, yeah, it was Park City. I mean, I was like, it was really cool. I was really happy to fly with him. Um, I came in the sport with Carlo. He was a great mentor. He helped me a ton. So for him to come out and fly with me was really cool. And I was, he said it too. He just like off the couch. I had, um, blown out my back. I, I bulged two discs in my back that off season. Um, and then strained my calf like a week prior and we still pushed, I think it was like 97 or something
0: or like we pushed, I think it was because we were all watching that. I remember that. I think it it was in the '90s for sure.
1: For for what we, for how we were barely held together, it was a good push. It was like, right. cool. There's certainly potential here. So, yeah, that was cool. Um, yeah, and so then the following year, because because driving is expensive, man. Like bobsled itself is expensive enough, but there's an equipment piece that is. I mean, it is vital to your success. You have to be prepared physically, mentally, financially, and then with equipment too. There's just so much to the sport. Um, I, I saw that that need and I knew <laughs> I didn't have it. So I didn't have the finances. So um, yeah, I, I, w- I always wanted to serve. Like when I was in high school, pretty much all of my friends went Marines or Army. and you know, I, I always felt the, the obligation and also like, just, yeah, I just felt like it was kind of the right thing to do just to serve your country and see how you can, I don't know, give, see how you can help or, you know what I mean? Find yeah. a job in the military that, that you can help and maybe you learn a skill too. And it's kind of a mutual benefit. Yep. So I, I thought that ship had sailed. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm older now. And you know, all that stuff. So, but yeah, there's this world class athlete program that um, athletes either already in the military, the army, um, or are about to join. If you're a nationally ranked or world championship or Olympic um, athlete, you can apply for this program, and if you meet the standards, you can you can get in this program where. You have a military job. You go through all the military training. You do have military obligations, but your your duty is your sport. So there's people in uh, Taekwondo, boxing, uh, shooting, obviously, and then um, obsolete as well, uh, among, uh, as well as others, too. But it was really cool. It, it's I'm super grateful for the program. It's a really unique opportunity. I'm learning... New skills. I'm, I go to leadership schools and it's just, I'm super grateful. And I have a good team, um, that I learn from outside of bobsled as well with my, with my military superiors. So it's, it's really cool. And then we get a paycheck and I can use that paycheck to buy those bobsled runners, the blades underneath the sled. People call them blades or not, but, um, yeah. And then if I need to go somewhere, I have, I have like consistent income that I can budget and say, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to go here, here, and here. Okay. I apply for temporary duty to go do those things and we do it. And it's, I will say without it, I would not be able to bobsled because it's just, I, I don't know how you work enough to pay for the sport while giving your all to training. Some people can do it. They have a really unique opportunity they can work remote or however it happens. Everyone has their own story. For me, um, yeah, I just I'm, I'm, I came from a working-class family, and I worked but didn't have the savings to, to come out and, and just go buy stuff like that where there's commas involved.
0: Yeah, and that's, that is one thing that I tell people because I still get hit up today of guys that are thinking about going out for bobsled or they just want to like ha- – kind of have the expectation set of like, what is it going to be like? And the first thing that I tell them is like, you need to make sure you have your shit together before you even try out because you're going to need to pay for things. You're going to need to tr- pay for your own travel. There's going to be opportunities where you're probably gonna have to pay for your own hotels. And if like, if you, it's a stressful enough sport where if you don't have that shit together and you hop into the sport, then you're just adding stress on top of stress. And that sport is very specific in terms of numbers and performance. And you want to try to minimize the amount of stress that you're going to bring with you into the sport in order to maximize the potential that you're going to have to make the team and be able to compete in that sport. And if you've got shit back home, whether you're going to stress out about bills or if you're just if you not going to be able to leave home for six months out of the year, like all that's going to do is make the experience bad for you. And I would rather set people up and have their expectations be at a realistic level, versus just being like, "Oh yeah, just go do a combine, do this and that, and then try to figure it out." And then they go through all the whole process, and then now they just waste their time because they're like, "Oh, I can't take six months off work, or I have no way to pay for this." Or so that's usually where I'll start off with a lot of people, and the WCAP program is a great program for people to have an opportunity to pursue a sport and have some sort of an income along with them. Because like you said, like if you're in the WCAP program, the world-class athlete program, whether you're in, it's the army and the air force. I know that have it. I don't know if the other branches have anything like that or anything similar, but if you're, if you're able to prove that like you're in contention for the national team or you're ranked nationally or whatever like that, and you're in the military, you can basically get orders to be like, all right, your job now, rather than being infantry or being whatever it is that you're doing your job now is bobsled so you're gonna go live at the training center and you just need to train you still have to like report and do stuff like that and like still have military type uh obligations but for the most part it can help relieve a lot of the stress for people like yourself if you wanted to be a pilot and there's a financial cost to that more than there is being a brakeman because a lot of pilots have to buy their own runners runners on average are going to be like 15 grand the good runners are going to be more than that so i mean just off the bat in equipment like you're talking about 15 grand for just four pieces of metal that you're going to need to take care of. And then you got to rent sleds, which is another couple grand every single year. And then if you're on the NAC, you got to pay for your own travel. You got to pay for your own hotels. You got to pay for your own Airbnb, like whatever it is like that can add up to be a lot. So it's really cool that the army and the air force do something like that, where it allows people to have a stable income, not have to stress out about that and still pursue their dream and, work towards something where they feel like they still have something to give athletically. So the, the WCAP program is really cool for that. So you go from, yeah, absolutely. You go from Brakeman to pilot, you join the military, you go through basic, like you ended up losing a season basically because you had to go through basic and all your military duties before you actually were able to get into the program and come back. Um, so you came, did you come back year three or was it year four? It was year three.
1: No, no, I was able to, I came back like kind of in the middle of year two. I didn't miss that much time. Um, but it was a unique year. I kind of fell off the face of the earth. That's why you, that's why it was easy to, that was the COVID year. It turned into COVID, but we ended up going to Europe. So I came, I came back from, um, I actually went straight from basic training. I was, I was held over because they with paperwork and stuff. I just spent like a month in this I, <laughs> just cement room. I remember that. Cause we, <laughs> you were like, like,
0: are you going crazy yet?
1: <laughs> when can I leave? So yeah, I, I, uh, go straight from there. I literally land in, well, I went there, went to Colorado Springs and in process and then went straight to park city and qualified for, or straight to Lake Placid qualified for the race and race. It was nuts. Um, yeah, I didn't do any like bobsled training. It was military training, go get my equipment, you know, like get all of my, my uniforms and all that stuff, all the jazz. And then I went straight to uh, Lake Placid and we just raced and Sam and I did that together. And it was really, it was cool because we kind of, we went in the military together. We kind of learned driving together. Um, it was a really cool experience to do that with someone who knew kind of what, what we were doing. You know what I mean? Could understand. It's kind of like when you're doing bobsled, it's nice to be around people that understand kind of the grind and and your efforts and stuff like that. So yeah, it was really cool. We just showed up and started racing. I was like 20 pounds lighter than I was when I left. And I'm like, yeah, it was just really cool. So we did the NAC in Lake Placid, and I think we just went right to Europe. I think we, Lake Placid, maybe we did Park City for a little bit for like training.
0: You guys did St. think Ritz we tested, didn't you?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think we did a little bit of testing in Park City to try to see if we could do the BMW two-mans because we were in Bodine's at that point. So did a little bit of BMW, and then we went to Europe. We went to... Saint Moritz, Königssee, and then uh, Eagles as well.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, and it was just so cool, man. Like Saint Moritz is just—it's beautiful. It's—I describe it as being like a rally driver. Um, You're just blasting through the woods. There's just trees everywhere, and you're just cruising through the woods, and it just reminds me of uh, like—and oddly enough, they sent a rally car down that track. Um, I'll find the video and send it to you. It's pretty cool. So. Yeah, it was just it, like that's just an amazing track to be at for the history and just the the beauty of the the you know the mountains and everything. So that was really cool. We went to Cundige, that's probably that is if it's not my favorite track to drive, it's really close. It it's and I hope they rebuild it um as soon as possible and that was really cool. And uh then we went to Eagles, which is basically it's for you guys it's for the push athletes yeah. <laughs> because the start the start is even more important there and then the breaking stretch is like kind of wild and exciting so it's yeah, i think it's more built for like a brakeman built that track they're like we i want to do stuff <laughs> i you know i want to do like the drive the driving is always important you can give away a lot of time there i think it gets kind of overlooked at how important the drive still is in eagles but um the yeah. The push and, and the braking that's kind of like your guys' spot, but yeah, so that trip was really cool. Um, I learned a lot. It was cool to go from, I mean, you need, you need to get trips on the same track in the same sled to just kind of like connect dots and, and learn like the feel of a sled and, and, you know, keep it simple. But it was really nice to get in these random rental sleds, go to a bunch of different tracks and learn new concepts. Um, and yeah, we, we went, I didn't crash anywhere, which was a, which was kind of cool. It kind of, you know, it just, it kind of was building my, my, I don't want to say resume, but it's building like my toolbox as a, as a driver. Like, Hey, I'm not just doing every trip in Lake Placid and that's the only place I can drive. Like we were, we were all learning. Um, and Sam was there too. We were just learning and, um, yeah, it was just a great time. So that was year two.
0: I was okay. That was year two, and then that was also like the half COVID year. Nationals got canceled that year, and it was just a mess. And then, so year year three, you do NAC, and or yeah, so year three, you do NAC again. Like you're you're building a reputation because. So I was one of the guys. I would say lucky enough or fortunate enough. Like I spent my entire career on the national team and which means I was on tour every year except for the COVID year when we only sent one sled. Um, Year three, we also only sent one sled. But I do remember it was Carlo, Kyle, myself, and uh, Cody was our pilot. And one thing we were always doing is checking the NAC and watching your guys' performances. And you were starting to definitely build a reputation along with Hunter as like, okay, these guys are going to be good. And these guys are going to start – like chomping at the bit of being like USA one and two. And everyone was really excited about that because our goal for year four was we wanted to send three sleds to the Olympics. We wanted to get that third quota spot again. And you were a huge part of that process of qualifying that third sled. And obviously we ended up only qualifying two because we had some performance issues and things going on in the world cup. And Jimmy and I talked about the whole process of, raising the funds so we could actually send two sleds on tour. And the whole reason we wanted to send two sleds on tour was so we could free up space for you to go do your work on the NAC again, because we knew if you, if we had everyone else out of the way, like you were going to go and perform and do your thing. So we wanted to get two sleds on tour, one sled on the NAC and try to qualify all three for the Olympics. And you had a hell of a season battling against Canada all year long Like one and two, one and two, one and two the whole time. Yeah, It was basically they won their home tracks. We won our home track. And then we split Park City enough to where because we didn't perform as well with both sleds on the World Cup and you guys did perform the way you were supposed to on the NAC, it ended up working out. We sent two sleds to the Olympics. But there's one story I wanted to touch on, and it's going to be something that I will never forget is – the beginning of every single year, we always start off with push champs. So regardless of if you're a pilot or a brakeman, you just have to do this push chest. So we go through, we do solo push champs, we do combos. um, And that's normally how it works. And then you would go do team trials and then they would name the national team off of that because of COVID and the schedule changes and how the season was going to start. We actually did team trials first at the end of year three versus the beginning of year four. So we're in park city and we're doing team trials. And I almost didn't go to park city cause I didn't want to race. And I don't like, there were a lot of things going on. And I remember you kept calling me. It was just like, you got to come to park city. Like you'll have a spot on my sled. We'll push. Well, we're going to race. Well, I just really want you there. And the, that, pushed me over the edge to finally come out to park city. And I remember telling you and Dakota and Avery on the phone when the three of you guys called me up to try to talk me, cause I was in Colorado at this time I was debating on whether I'm going to go to park city or whether I'm just going to go back home. And I had told you then I was like, look, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. One of the reasons I'm not wanting to come out is because I'm pretty sure my mom is going to pass away and like there's a chance that like i'm gonna get a phone call and i'm gonna be in park city and i don't want that to happen and if like if i could go home then i want to go home but the connection that i have with you guys and just like like i've said this many times on different episodes like that that fellas group is a tight group like these episodes that we're doing are all guys that are really good friends. Like we all still talk with each other. We play games together. Like we're, we're still connected even though none of us are in the sport together anymore. And you guys called me up, convinced me to come out there. We're getting ready for team trials. There's this team trials was an eventful team trials for me. It was the only time I've ever been crashed. (laughs) I almost made it through four years of bobsled and never wrecking. Frankie is the only pilot who has ever put me on my head in a sled, not to his own <laughs> fault though. Uh, yeah, like we're doing four man. I'll, this is a quick story. So we're doing four man, and it's a training day. I th- I don't remember if we were testing. I don't remember what we were doing, but normally in a, in a four man, you push the sled. Frankie jumps in. I'm the two guy. So as soon as Frankie goes in, I'm getting in, and then the three guy, and then the four guy. So I sit down, and I'm in my position. And the way that I sit as a two guy, I'm kind of looking, like, up. I can kind of see above the sled a little bit and, like, see, see things that are going on versus the guys behind me, their heads are basically buried into the ground. So I, I hop into the sled, and Frankie's just, like, shoulder underneath the sled, like, digging. I'm like, what is he doing? What is, like, his left arm should not be that deep into the sled. and. It, <laughs>
1: Like, we go through
0: turn one, and then, like, we come out of turn one, and then, boom, we slam. I'm like, what is going on? Like, we're not, we why are we hitting walls right now? Like, this shouldn't be happening. Frankie's still reaching, like, it's almost like he's trying to grab his foot. I'm like, what the fuck is Frankie doing right now? And then, also, like, after we made, I think it was, like, turn three or four, we're starting and hitting in spots that we never hit before, and I'm like, shit, Frankie doesn't have his D-ring. and. So, for those that don't know...
1: I thought he was tying his shoe, but it turns out he doesn't have his D-ring.
0: I was like, Frankie doesn't have his D-ring because, like, every time we would come off a turn, regardless, like, you could just tell you weren't able to straighten it back out and it would just slam. So, for those that don't know, the D-rings, like, when a pilot jumps in, they basically have these two handles and think of it as, like, a pulley system. Like, you pull on the right handle, it'll make the runners turn to the right. You pull on the left handle, it'll make the runners turn to the left. So, that's a very simple way of kind of describing so when Frankie jumps into the sled, that left handle, he that cord that connects it, so they're just hanging there in the middle. So normally you jump in, shoot in, grab your D-rings. They're right there between your legs. Well, he jumps in. That cord is so frayed that his foot hit it, and the D-ring shot to the nose of the sled, which you cannot grab. There's no way that you're going to you, – you just can't reach as far down to grab that. So once I figure out what he's doing – I'm like, shit, all right. I start tapping Dakota, who sits three. He's like, I'm trying to grab his foot and move it so I can get down lower. Because as a two guy, I'm the highest guy in the sled for the brakeman. So if we go over, my head is going to hit the ice. I'm like, I don't want this to happen. So I'm just preparing the whole time. I'm like, fuck, we're going over. Fuck, we're going. But we're not going over yet. I'm like, damn, maybe we're going to make it. But I'm still trying to, like, tap Dakota, like, move your foot, move your foot. And then what is there, 16? 16 turns in Park City? I forgot. <laughs> uh, no, 15. 15 turns. Okay. So there's 15 turns in Park City. And with all, like, think of this as like you're going down a... Like if you're driving a car, like you could basically only make the car go straight or turn right. You can't make this car turn left, but you have a racetrack that you're on with left turns, which is kind of the situation that Frankie's in right now. And... He makes it to turn 13 without ever being able to make this sled go left. And, and then we end up rolling over, crossing the finish line and everything. But it was the most eventful run that I've ever been in. Cause I knew from like turn two or three, I was like, we're going to crash at some point. I'm just trying to position. But to me, it was also one of the coolest things. I was like, fuck Frankie, you almost made it all the way down the track, <laughs> not being able to turn left. So,
1: yeah, I had a few turns of like, get the D ring at all costs. Like at one point I was like, it will be better if I actually like slide down my seat and look under the sled and not know where we're going if I get the D ring. So I was trying as hard as I could. Then once we, I tried that through one, two and three turn four, I was like, I need to at least see what's going on because four to five, like the way the transition is, I I need to make sure that I'm on the steer. But I I went from like a little bit of, honestly, it's a little bit of panic. like get the D-ring, get the D-ring, get the D-ring. And then I just calmed down and just went, you're going to have to drive this sled with one D-ring. And I just told myself that. And I, I actually started thinking how I could do it. I was like, okay, on labyrinth turns, I'm going to hit, I'm going to pull right for a left. And I'm going to hit before the left on the entrance wall and try to push and skip the whole curve. And then on big curves in the middle, I'm going to hit the roof. I'm going to steer up and then hit the roof and have the roof push me out. I was like actively thinking that we were going to make it down. I was like, "We, uh, this is what you have to do. Just go make it happen. And yeah, 13 is a pretty pretty decent left. And I, I pulled it up, but I don't think... I mean, obviously, I didn't do it at the right time, but I don't know. It, it, it might it, it might be possible, but it didn't happen, it did. and we rolled out of the last left, and if we made it, man, if we made it,
0: we would have just,
1: oh, go buy a lottery ticket, man.
0: <laughs> so, But here's the thing, though, is that crash, even though we crashed, knowing that... You made it that far, not being able to turn left. For whatever reason, for me, that was like the most impressive run that I've ever been a part of outside of the next thing that happens. But obviously, like not being able to turn left, almost finishing an entire course without being able to turn left, to me, that was like one of the most impressive things I'd ever seen. And that like just skyrocketed my confidence. It was like I will be in this man's sled at any point in time ever like there's, there's no doubt in my mind that I would never have a worry about anything about hopping in this dude's sled, which there's other pilots who I will just flat out be like, I am never hopping in that man's sled because <laughs> there's no way I trust that guy. But even like I said, well, that like,
1: means a lot, man. Thank even you.
0: though we crashed, like for me, it was just like, all right, like my confidence in you as a pilot at that point in time was at an all time high. And then we start off team trials and, this has to be one of the most memorable moments of my entire bobsled career, and I know it'll be something that you'll never forget as well, because you were a part of this, and it was huge. So we're getting ready for the two-man race, and we actually are staying in the same hotel. We've got two rooms for the all five of the guys, and I wanted to do two-man with you, and I remember, I think it was like a week before or something, I was like... Like, you hadn't even made the decision of who's racing two man with you. I was just like, I'm racing two man with you because I want to beat everybody else. Like, that's just flat out. I was like, I'm going to race two man with you. And you were just like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> we're going to do two man. So, the morning of two man, I end up getting a phone call. My brother calls me up and he tells me my mom had just passed away. And that moment, like that I still remember like the series of events on everything that happened that morning and there was no pressure from you, even though like it was the morning of the day of the race, there was no pressure from you saying like, well, we still got it right. You, you were just like, do whatever you need to do. Like, let me know. And I, I remember thinking back on that run where you crashed and how much confidence I had in you as a pilot And I also felt like a sense of pride where I was like, I've already committed to you. And I know like if I were to pull out and be like, no, I don't want to race today because uh, I just found out my mom died and all this shit was going on. I knew if I'd pulled out, like it wasn't going to make it any better. I was like, what's going to make this situation as best for me as possible is going out and doing the best that I can for Frankie. And like, I remember warming up and I'm in tears and some of the guys on the team, they're walking up to me and they're also in tears because they just hated seeing me in that stance. And I remember there was a moment where I was warming up and you come walking up to me and you're also like, you're basically crying as much as I'm crying at this point. And you've got tears in your eyes and you just said like, you're like, I love you, man. We're going to go out and we're going to fucking win this race. And that would be a moment that i'll never forget because for that split second like i was like fuck yeah we are even though like i'm still thinking about my mom passing away and like having to deal with all those emotions we go through our warm up and we take our first run and like i remember sitting on the block or standing on the block and i was about to do my cadence and i'm like i had to wipe tears out of my eyes first before i said set like i'm just a mess so we we do our first run i don't remember were we in? I think we were in first place after the first run, because I, I think we went off last second heat. But we go down, and we're in first place, and I'm like, I can't think of anything other than just like dealing with all the emotions and everything. And I remember looking at you, and you just being so fucking pumped on what place we're in right there. And that again for me was just like, I'm like, all right, I like just can just do one more run, and we're gonna make this happen and we did and we put it together and we get down to the finish and again everyone's in tears i still have the security cam footage that i'm i'll never delete where i pull the brakes you hop out of the sled i hop out of the sled and then we just hug each other and you can see that both of us are just fucking in it we're excited that we won we're both we're both sad that we just went through that experience but it was such a mix of emotions It's also the only race that I ever won in my career, and it was with you, somebody that I had a tremendous amount of respect for and just one of my friends, along with all the other guys and everything. But that, to me, is going to be like top three, top two, top number one experience for me in my entire career of bobsled there. So one thing I want to say is, because you were a part of that, the way that you handled it, the emotion that you showed me, like coming up to me when you were in tears, knowing that I was just in pain. Like the only reason you were in tears is because you saw me in tears and you knew that I was in pain. And that to me was just like, I fucking love this dude. Like forever. Frankie <laughs> is one of the guys who will forever be in contact with regardless of what life goes through because I absolutely love this band. So again, I love you. I appreciate everything that you did that day for me, it'll be something that I never forget. And it was fucking incredible.
1: It was Blaine. I love you too, brother. Um, Yeah, I was, I was so uh, moved by that. When I flew home, I cried the whole flight home. I just was, I was so blown away by um, your resilience The the loss you experienced um, and how you pulled through, and me just being um, with you for that it it was just incredible, man. I don't know how to really word it. I just knew that it was something that was so special. I couldn't grasp it, and I just, dude, I just, I cried the whole way home. I, I just, I don't know how long the flight is, but I was. It was like I would stop and then I would think about it and I would relive it, and I just knew that. I guess I was processing the emotions that you just explained to me. I was processing those emotions. Um, and yeah, man, that was absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm grateful to have been able to be there for you and for us to pull out the win. I think the most important thing obviously was just being there for you. If Bob bobsled never existed or if we never raced, it was just, just us being there for you. For us to go out, really for you to go out and win that race. um, Dude, that was like magic. Sometimes something happens and it's just, it's hard to even explain how special it is. It it was, it was incredible, man.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. So the reason for that story is because that was team trials. So you won a two man race. We go back, we finish team trials again in... Lake Placid later on, and then we go through push champs. The national team gets named. You end up not being on the World Cup team that goes over to Europe, but you do have a very important task on the NAC to try to accomplish, which is score enough points and able to qualify for the Olympics. That season on the NAC, like I said already, was a battle between you and Canada. Like You would win, they would get second. They would win, you would get second. It was just back and forth. There was a couple thirds in there, which made people start getting nervous about, oh, okay, the points have to be here and that and everything. Us on the World Cup, we're watching every single race and counting points and trying to calculate like, all right, if we get this place at this race, then we can still bump up above Canada and blah, 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 blah. We end up only qualifying one team from the World Cup. And then at what moment throughout that NAC season, that Olympic year, did you kind of realize like oh shit I'd done it like I'm going to be able to at least have enough points to where I can qualify the sled for the Olympics
1: ooh that's it's hard to say Um, that season itself was just there was just so much involved and I, I I'm honestly not really good at like I mean it's just math and I like math but I'm not good at tracking all this stuff and I was just like we just have to go out and perform as best we can we're going to go to Whistler. I've never been there as a driver. It's a, an incredibly demanding and dangerous track. It doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how well we're tracking the points if we're not going out and getting the points. So I actually wasn't doing a whole lot of tallying and keeping score. I was just like, my obligation is to first and foremost, keep the guys that get in the sled with me safe. Yep. And, but also I need to get, I need to haul ass. That's the I, I, That's just what I have to do. There's no room for error. If we crashed one race, I knew that I would not be going to the I would assume that I would not be going to the Olympics and that anybody with me, I would ruin their chance, most likely. I suppose they could get onto a different sled and if points worked a certain way or whatever, but um, I really believe that with the guys we had, that we could do it. So yeah, we went to Whistler and it was, it was just, we were just duking it out with, with, um, Canada. But what was crazy is just going back to Whistler being so demanding is we were, we did our, um, two man training and all that. And it was all good. And then when it was time for four man, um, there was, there were so many crashes the whole time we were there because of the nature of the track. Um, and it's NAC. So it's, it's, you know, a little bit more of a developmental circuit than world cup, but, we do one run in four man and I think it was like an hour and a half or two hours goes by and we're not even close to taking our second run. Um, because there were so many crashes and the the start house just has people like getting checked out by sports med and like people have concussions. They're like going to the hospital, all this stuff. And, um, I just looked at the guys and I was like, Um, that run wasn't perfect. I know what I can fix to get more speed. Let's go home, eat, prep the sled. We will be fine for the race. And so I think, and and all the guys had a similar sentiment of just that, that really high focus and just there's, there's benefits taking the more runs, but I think just being incredibly focused and determined, you can do some pretty, pretty amazing things, um, by yourself. And especially when you have a team behind you that shares the same sentiment. So we did get third in one of those races in Whistler, but moving forward, it was really, if I remember right, first and second for the rest of the time. Um, And then in Lake Placid, we got um, one run for a race was they, they voided it because of snow or something, but we hit concrete. Oh, that's what it was. A bunch of people hit concrete. So they nullified the run. I thought we hit it worse than if you looked at the runners we did. And then we were given like an hour to resand our runners and show back up. And we got, I don't even remember four. I was so like bummed. Um, cause I will say at that point, that was when I knew that we were not going to get three sleds, no matter what you guys did. Because it, going into that season, um, Canada and I, We pretty much had this unwritten thing where we looked at each other and it it was, we pretty much knew it's you or I that are going to go to the games, which was pretty cool because it, it was always respectful. It started off, I could tell pretty intense. It always was respectful. And then it became a brotherhood, um, of just like, we're gonna, we're going for broke, man. We're going to do everything we can and may the best man win. And then we ended up both going, but which was cool. So kind of, kind of fostered that brotherhood even more. But anyways, at that point in Lake Placid, I was, I was so, I was so hurt for our team because I knew that at that moment we weren't going to get three sleds. And I think at that point in time, that was like, what was that? One of the last NACs. It was the second to last NAC four man race. So I think at that point I was technically, I was technically USA one. So I knew that I was going at least in two man, I wasn't actively thinking about that, but just by points, you can just see, okay, I'm probably going, but I wanted to get the guys that helped me make that happen and truly made it possible. And then obviously the other guys as well. So we can get three, sleds and everyone can, it, it, everyone can go. It, it's it's not just about going to the Olympics and making an Olympic team, but that helps grow the sport, grow the team. It, you need the experience. You're not going to always go there and just win medals. Sometimes you have to go there, fight for a top 10, learn and come back and haul even more. So it just takes the experience. So, and plus we work, plus we work really hard. We, you know, so, I I will say that was when I knew we weren't getting three and that's what stuck out to me more than knowing that I was going to go. Um, and we, yeah, it was, that was tough, man. And I do remember, I do remember saying something to my dad, my, my dad and my uncle came out and watched park city. Um, and I remember coming down and we won the race in park city and between getting third and then like a bunch of seconds in Whistler, um, when we won the race in Park City, I remember hugging my dad, and I said, "Dad, I'm gonna do it." That's all I said.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I, I think just getting through, getting through Whistler um, was going to be the biggest obstacle because now we're on home tracks. So, um, I think that was, and I didn't. I, I share that with you just, just because that's what I said. But it wasn't like I was walking around like I'm gonna do it. It was just deep down in my Soul, I knew that we had what it took to do it.
0: Right.
1: Um, like so, Whistler was, yeah. so, yeah, Whistler
0: that, was validation for you.
1: Yes, because if that didn't work, I mean, yeah, sure, go get more trips to to do the best you can, and maybe block out and help um, us continue to to qualify. Because it didn't have to be me. Um, I just thought that we had, you know, the best chance to make it happen. Yeah. So. So yeah, that was, um, it was a, it was a, an incredible experience. And I, I will say just putting, cause then, well, let me backtrack a little bit. Then we finished the last four man race. We went into the, um, finish house. And at that point they had already announced that Kyle and I were going to join the national team and the world and on the world cup. So we did our last race and all the guys, I mean, we just, I mean, we just cried. Yeah. <laughs> I know we talk about Bob said being so tough and all this <laughs> stuff, and then this episode's a whole lot of whole lot of crying. Oh, but crying going it's
0: just
1: you. But it's just it's a lot of emotion. You have you have some people that were in the sport for three years, some for like nine at that point, and you just realize that once again, it's not all about the just making the team. But you when you when you pour so much of your heart and soul into something, and then you're watching it slip through your fingertips, it was. It was a lot, and also I think that 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 season was incredibly special of, of what we did. Not to um, you know be a bragger or anything, but just just looking at what we did, I only had one year in a foreman leading up to that year. I had never been to Whistler. Um, the guys, I mean, they were bulletproof. They were great teammates. They made my life easy. They had confidence in me. I had confidence in them. We hauled a bunch of ass. They pushed great. So just, it was a lot to, to know that we were no longer, we were going to split up. It was going to be Kyle and I moving on. The rest of the guys weren't going. Obviously to them, that kind of shows, well, I guess we're not in contention for making the team. Right. Um, yeah, and I, and so Kyle and I go on to the World Cup and my very first run, on the world cup I crash (laughs) and I crash like in a spot that's like such a stupid place to crash and, and everybody crashes and I'm not, I'm no exception, but I don't find myself to be like a crashing pilot. Like I don't crash a lot. Um, so we crash in this stupid spot to crash on a track that is tricky, but not that hard. It was Winterberg and I went with Kyle and what was so cool was I don't know if Kyle would have ever let, anyone else take the first runs he never said anything he just was like we were just going together and it was just like why would we not go together
0: right
1: and we crashed and he just right away i'm like kyle are you okay he's like yep we get out of the sled and he pats me on the back and he's like you'll get it man let's go and we just went back (laughs) to the top and i was like dude this guy is like nails he's just tough as nails and also he is, he has, he's tough as nails, but yet he's so compassionate and friendly and nice. And it was just so cool, man. And and we, we put together a crew that had never really slid together at all. And we, we got some pretty good starts. We'd started, uh, you know, what was it? Sixth and fifth or something like that. Yeah, like you was, guys
0: had awesome starts. Was, at Winterberg.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's always really tough when, when the Olympics come around because, as excited as you are for people who make it, whether you're included or not, you also really feel for those who didn't make it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'll say when, when they made the announcement, um, cause, cause everyone kind of remembers that, you know, where they, where they, where, where the announcement was made and all that. And I remember I was just like, I just want to put this in a vacuum, just like, just putting our sled in a vacuum. Cause I don't want to say anyone, I don't want to say anything, you know, that's inappropriate, but it's just, if you take our sled, put it in a vacuum and what we did together, I was really sad that we didn't have the opportunity to have the three sleds and have all of the guys that put in the help to make it happen, make the team. That's all I'll say. I really was hoping. So for me, that's, I don't necessarily remember where I was named. I just remember being like, "Wow, we really only got two. Wow, like we're really not sending all the guys, and even other guys that weren't even on the top three sleds—just great guys that perform well. They're good dudes. Like that was what stuck out to me. And believe me, I'm like you've seen me in competition. I'm much different. I'm not cracking jokes and like all stuff. Like when it's time to go, I'm like I'm very intense. I'd like to. I'm pretty sure, but. Outside of that, like the stuff that stuck out to me the most was I was just thinking of the guys. And, and then when it was time to, when the visor came down and it was time to to be an athlete, I was, you know, I was in go mode, but that wasn't a time to be in go mode. And I, I had a lot of emotion and it was mostly just compassion for, for everyone who, who didn't make it. Um, especially those that, you know, were were close. So, um, I was, I guess, relieved that I was named, but as a driver, it's different because if you earn the points, you, you're you pretty much, I guess I was still waiting to see if I would go for four man or not, even though I think I'd probably do better in four man than two man, but I just didn't know how it was going to work. Cause there's some, you know, I think USA two is technically subjective and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about that stuff. I just go out, try to haul as much ass as possible and see what happens.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, that's what stuck to me. It was like, damn man, we didn't do it. And Oh, we really had a good group. We, and I, I think we would have, I know we would have three competitive sleds. So I was like, Hey, and that's really what stuck out was. And and I remember with, with, you know, me sliding mostly with the guys on the NAC, I'll tell you, Kyle came up to me after the, uh, after the announcement, cause he knew the room we were in and just gave me a hug and said, Hey, you're going to do great. And I remember just crying. <laughs> I was like, dude, man how did this all go south like we didn't get three and you're like you're just such a good dude and and there's so many people that i think can contribute and we just i don't know you know just things sometimes happen in a way that it just doesn't work out and i think our sled it was almost like it was almost like a cinderella story our team to get our sled to make it at all because we were like the underdogs we're the nac dudes i was the pilot with the least amount of experience Um, and yeah, I was really hoping that we would get three sleds and, and we could kind of, you know, end the story like that, but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, but I would still say that, you know, I'm very grateful for everything that, that happened. And I think it was really special how the men's team came together, truly encouraged each other. Um, I had some guys, um text me every now and then, like, hey, good job in Whistler, like, you tackled that shit, like, good job, keep it up. So it was really cool to have that kind of supportive environment where I think, I can't speak for everyone, but we were just kind of like, look, we're going to go out, we're going to do the absolute best we can. The goal is to make three sleds. We want to get the best results possible leading up to, and of course, at the games. Um, and I think, you know, it's... <sighs> it's a mixture of emotions because i'm i'm happy for how a lot of things went but also i feel you know for the people who didn't make it so
0: yeah and that's always that jimmy and carlo both explained it the same way where it's like like it, it, whether it's being named to the national team like anytime they were naming a team for any purpose there was always that mixture of feelings like when they named the national team that year i made the team but i felt like, I had more emotions towards feeling bad for the guys that didn't make the team than feeling good that the fact that I made the team that year. Cause at that point, like, Kyle didn't make the national team. I felt terrible for him because I thought he should have made the team. Dakota didn't make the national team. I felt terrible for him because I think he should have made the team. And I get named to the team and I also feel like I deserved it, but I also was just like, fuck, I don't care that I made the team because the guys that I wanted to make it with aren't making the team with me. And that means we're not going to be able to spend a season together and we're not going to be able to push together. And these guys are going to have to go off and go do something else. So there is that mixture of feelings, which you were explaining you had with with being named to the Olympic team is like, you wish those guys that helped you make it there could also have that experience. But there's that mixture of like, yeah, you just got named to the Olympic team you're going to go compete at the highest level on the world's biggest stage, but you're not happy about it because you're still thinking about the guys that didn't make it. And I mean, I've one, one, I've talked about Kyle a lot on this podcast because we had the bet and Jimmy talked about Kyle and Carlos talked about Kyle and Kyle will have his own episode. And, but like the emotions that you had, the emotions that I had towards like people that not made the team. And I'll, I've said this before and I'll say it again the f- that group of guys that we had on that team for that 4 years is probably one of the tightest group of men in any sports on any team that I've ever been a part of. Like that group would do anything for each other even knowing that not every single person was going to be able to make the Olympics. Like we had mo- like the most that we were going to send was going to be 9 guys to the Olympic team on for breakmen, but we had 20 guys trying out and all 20 rallied around together And did everything for each other at all times throughout the season, and not even just Olympic year, like the year before, and throughout that whole quad. Like that group is the reason why I'm doing like this series on the podcast called The Fellas, where every guy is going to get their own individual episode because I think everyone has a unique story, and it just goes to show, like, by talking with all of you guys as individuals like, how tight that group really was because everybody is saying the same things in maybe different ways. Like, the way that you talk about the team, the way that Jimmy talked about it, the way that Carlos talked about it, like, you guys have your own experiences, but it all is still under the same umbrella of, like, that group of men is just a fucking solid group of dudes that everyone is tight-knit with each other. So, so you, do, you end up making the Olympic team, and... You go out to China. Um, explain like your experience as a first-time Olympian, starting with like walking walking out and opening ceremonies until finishing that last run in format. How was the Olympics for you? Like, what was that experience, and what did you learn from all of that?
1: Well, it was it was awesome, and let me say, I was happy when when we got there. I was happy. It wasn't that I was upset with like. Really, anything other than I just wish everyone could have made it yeah, that's cool. yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I know is not 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 possible, but yeah, so um, yeah, it was cool, you know, we had the team named, so we we did a little holding camp um and then went out to China, and so yeah, I just it it was it was different because of the climate we we're in with you know the pandemic and everything, so. And for me, anyways, it wasn't going to be too much of like, I didn't want to celebrate or anything like that. I just wanted to get to work. Right. So I did, not, I did not go to the test event, um, which I think is just really, really important for drivers. So I was trying to make up for lost time. I knew that out of every driver there, I had the least amount of experience. And I knew that I didn't go to the test event. So it wasn't that I was counting myself out. I was just like, I can't. I can't be out on my feet, like lollygagging around sightseeing all the time. I need to be in my room. Like I'll go see some stuff, but I need to be in my room studying the track. So I studied notes as much as I could. I watched the POV of the, whatever it was, a skeleton sled or something that went down. Um, and it was actually really cool, um, walking the track because it's like, it's just, we're used to warming up like outside getting rained on, snowed on. This was a, the up area was incredible. It was like up, I don't know, three floors or something and closed in. It was awesome. So it was cool going to the track and seeing it firsthand. Like, wow, this is really cool. And Kyle actually went to the test event and sent me a lot of footage. So I saw it on my phone, but to see it in person was different. And so Hunter and I were the driver's, um, there and so we would walk the track and he had not gone to the testament either so we're brainstorming we'll look at a turn and this is the turn that people are screwing up in the most or this is where we think we can make the most time and we just spitballed we were just like well what would you do look at what they did we think they did this what would you do to make it better and that for me was a cool experience because i think i was you, you always want to continue to grow but that was forcing me to grow because i was seeing turns i had never seen and then never driven. And it was a different style of track. And we had to sit there as athletes and just go, well, what would you do? What would you do to go through here? Right. Um, and, and of course we had, um, Shimer there as well, who was helping a lot, but sometimes it was just us and we would just be chatting and it was a, it was a really cool experience. Um, and competing was, was awesome. Um, it was, it was kind of odd, man. I didn't know how I would, I didn't know how I would feel competing at the games. Um, but I just had this sense of like, it was a sense of calm. It was just, I truly wasn't nervous at all. I was just in that go mode. I was in just, I don't know. I just had like all the right focus and my, I certainly had a ton of adrenaline. I felt like I would run, run through a wall if you asked me to, but it was just so focused and I just wanted to do the best we possibly could. Um, the guys we competed with were great guys. Like I had been around for Hakeem and I came up together. We came into the sport together and all that. So like, it was cool just like having our journey come together at that point. Cause we really never, we didn't really race together much at all as push athletes. Um, and I, I, I don't even think we really raced much, um, when I became a driver. Um, and then Carlo really helped me out when I first came in the sport and we were both push athletes, Jimmy and I competed together at the university of Maine. We were on the four by one team together. Um, we competed with, and kind of alongside each other for my whole career. So I was like, man, this is, this is just really cool. And I, and I knew that it was a couple of their last games. So I was like, I really for so many reasons for myself, for the team, for the guys, for so many reasons, I just want to do the best I possibly can. So, um, yeah, I was just like hyper-focused and I, I did, I did enjoy myself. I walked around and we went to, um, a skiing spot and just looked. didn't do any skiing obviously, but it was mostly like a business trip and I was so focused that I probably didn't take in as much as I could have. Um, but I, it was, that's not why I was there. I was there to, um, my goal, truthfully, was to crack the top ten. If it was tied for tenth, ten ways, I just I wanted to crack the top ten. Um, and I just thought, you know, if you know, if everything goes right, it's it's possible. And I, I, I know that I have a lot of work to do to be out there, like you know, winning stuff. But um, I just I just wanted to do my best. Um, so that's kind of where I was at, just hyper focused. And it was it was a really it was a cool experience, man. I'll say that that quad had some of the highest highs of my life and lowest lows in my life. Some stuff we didn't even necessarily touch on. And that's why for me, um, it was more, I was not, um, in a place to just celebrate that I made the team. I had so much, um, that I had gone through and experienced good and bad that I just wanted to do my absolute best. I don't know if it was a, a validation thing. I don't know if it's just how I would be no matter what. Um, cause we always want to do our best, but yeah, man, I was just there, like just hyped up. <laughs> 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 just, I was like, I want this so bad. If we had to race 10 days in a row, I would race 10 days in a row. Like nothing, nothing's going to stop us, man. Let's go. Yeah. So it was cool.
0: Did you experience any kind of like Post Olympic come down, or like, how was once that was all over, and you got back to like the real world back home? What was that experience like? Of like, did you have a sense of accomplishment? Did you have a new sense of motivation? Did you have a sense of like you didn't go out and do what you wanted to do, or like, how was that post Olympic experience for you?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I had any sort of post Olympic lull, or or like a, a depression, or anything like that, and. Honestly, I don't feel any different having been to the Olympics. I don't tie my identity to the Olympics. Like my self-worth was not based off of if I made it or not. Um, I am super grateful for it. I I, like cannot stress that enough, how grateful I am for it, um, for the experience and the journey. And I want to go to multiple more and I want to, you know, but I was just, um, there's there's so much more to me than bobsled. When I'm bobsledding, that's all that's happening. But outside of bobsled, like I got married um, June of 21, so we never took a um, honeymoon because my wife went back to clinicals for grad school and I went back to bobsled. So we took a little honeymoon. We rented a camper van, drove around um, Arizona, and went to all these like. You know, went to the Grand Canyon and Horseshoe Bend, and went to California and saw family and friends. And so, for me, I was so um, excited to experience those things with my wife that it was just one thing to the next. It was like bobsled, then it was like family time. Um, yeah, and then we, we found out she was pregnant um, shortly after that. So it's been um, it's been busy and it was good because I think the the first time around, uh, I wasn't busy and I didn't know what to do because there was nothing. I had no plans other than bobsled. It was just be a push athlete. That's what I did all the time.
0: Right.
1: And I had no, no, I had no nothing left. So when that didn't happen, I was kind of like, like kinda like in shock where I was like, okay. I think marathoners have it. They call it a marathon something where like you train even when it happens, you train for the marathon and then all of a sudden you feel like you don't have a purpose.
0: Yeah.
1: Well for me the marathon the marathon didn't even happen. I was like, uh Hmm, this is this is not a great feeling. So anyways, having made it potentially helped, I um you know, I said I wanted a top ten, but I don't put I don't focus on numbers too much. I felt like I drove um, I was, I won't say like happy cause I always demand more from myself, but I will say that overall I thought considering everything that I did half decent, like I can be, I can build from that. Like we had a couple runs where I thought we were, we were moving right along pretty good. And then a couple runs where I made some mistakes and you got to learn from it. So I was able to look at that with a different lens, not in the moment. And I said, okay, first time around, you know? They're all right. You can you can work with that. Like build from it. Enjoy you you enjoyed the time with the guys and it's time to now enjoy your life outside of bobsled and then be ready, rejuvenated to come back in the next year and, and just keep keep going. So I yeah, didn't really have a new well.
0: Yeah, you had a lot of more highs coming after the Olympics with the honeymoon and then Seb and then everything going on. So it's hard to have a low yeah. when you have those kind of life events going on. All right. Well, last, yeah. th- last thing here. I asked G- I asked Jimmy, I asked Carlo, I'm going to ask you. You might have a different perspective, being that you are a brakeman and a pilot. But what's your favorite track in the world, and what's your least favorite track in the world?
1: Well, I'll get the easy one out of the way because as a push athlete, I I still didn't like Altenberg. I never, I never crashed there. I, I was never crashed there. Um, I, I slid there with a few different pilots, um, never crashed there, but it's just like the setup for all the pretty much the same reasons, like the setup itself. I'm pretty sure it's the smallest start house. I think it's the original start house and they'd never made it bigger despite way, now, there's more events, there's more people at times, like it's just anyways, we already went over it It's so Altenburg I, I three like,
0: three for three for everyone's least favorite track so far is Altenburg oh, you throw mine yeah, in and, and then, then it's four for four, yeah, which
1: you know it's understandable. There's a lot of Germans that don't even like Altenburg, some <laughs> of them love it because it's such a home field advantage, and if you do it well, it's sweet, but yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I think I think even some of them don't like it um. And then the, the, I want to give you just a a black and white answer, but it's hard with the favorite, um, because St. Moritz is the most beautiful area
0: Oh, and it's really
1: fun to drive. It's really fun to drive. And there's ice go-karts not too far away. Um, but not fast, but you get to slide. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, draw to that, but my favorite track to actually drive is Koenigsegg, I
0: think. Okay. That makes sense.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it's like uh it's like three different people were given the task of building a track and then they just put it together without communicating.
0: <laughs> yes. That's, that so would be a very, like great way to describe Kunixay. Plus I mean talking about scenery, Kunixay to me is a close second to St. Moritz. Saint-Marie. Like St. Moritz is by far the most beautiful spot that you can race. Kunigase to yeah. me is a very very close second to that. Like it's an an amazing spot. The hotel that we stay at in Kunigase is always amazing. Uh, the track there is a fun track to be on. Like going through the S curves and then the doodle. Like you're saying, like somebody designed the S curves is not the same person that designed the doodles and is not the same person that designed the start, <laughs> yeah. like the double dip start start ramp. It's just like
1: yeah, which is which is so important because. I love it. It's like such a high skill thing that everyone is tested. It's like the push athletes, the driver, just like you're saying, that start ramp is super steep. Well, it's pretty steep, really quick. And then you have to get in and down before that little compression. Otherwise you ruin your velocity. And then like two seconds later, you're up on a wall (laughs) for all the S's. Like, like you're like, dude, we just got in the sled. Why are we like 10 feet up in the air? You know, the first time then a I a down
0: Koenigse. I was with Olsen and I we did it was in four man first. And the first time we go down in four man, we go through the S curves. I thought I was going uphill. Like yeah, dude. I'm sitting in the two spot and we're going through, I'm like, are we going up right now? Like, why are we going up? Like uphill to the left, uphill to the right, uphill to the left. I'm like, what kind of track is this right now?
1: Yeah, and then there's like quick transitions a little bit, but it's pretty, I like, you know, it's smooth, which is cool. Yeah, it's just, it, there's so much character to the track that it's pretty fun to drive. I mean, But I have a, I have a few favorites.
0: Koenigse I was, love like uh, Placid. Yeah, Placid. I mean, Placid is just home track. You always, you always love your home track, regardless of how rough it is. And, and I love that it's
1: intense. Yeah. I, I just, love that it's in, like I love that. It's like, dude, it, let's like, let's conquer this thing. Let's go. Let's like... Four runs a day, two runs a day, however many, doesn't matter. Placid we, we will outlast.
0: Placid is one of those tracks where it doesn't matter how like new of a pilot you are or how seasoned of a pilot. Like if anybody were to crash in Placid, like people would be like, Oh, okay. Yeah, like people just crash in Placid. Like you could be the best pilot and you crash and people aren't gonna be surprised that you crashed. And the same thing in Altenburg. Like if you crash in Altenburg, people aren't gonna be surprised that you crashed in Altenburg. But there's some tracks where it's like like you you shouldn't be crashing in Park City. Like unless you don't have your left D ring. Obviously, we discussed that. (laughs) But like there's there's easier tracks in the world where it's like, all right, like if you're a pilot that's been around, like you shouldn't be crashing at this track. And if you do, then it's kind of like, but no matter how good of a pilot you are, how long you've been in there, like if you make a mistake in Placid, like it can bite you in the ass quick. And it might not get you on the next turn, but You can make a mistake in one turn and that's going to, you already know like fuck two turns later, I'm going to pay for that. And all of a sudden you're on your side. And so like Placid is just one of those beasts that no matter how long you've been in the sport or how new like crashes are going to happen there, but nobody's ever surprised that crashes happen there. But pilots, like especially the home pilots like you, I know Hunter loves Placid. That's Cody loves Placid. Like those home pilots absolutely love that track, which is the same for I'm sure the home guys that love Altenburg are the German dudes that are from yeah. there, but everyone else hates it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's four for four. Altenburg is the worst place in the world. And Carlos said St. Moritz, you and Jimmy both say Koenigse. So, so far Koenigse is the, the best place to be until we get more votes from other, other fellas. Yeah. Awesome, well, Frankie, I appreciate you being on the show. It's been awesome to kind of relive these moments, talk about your experience. All, always awesome just to connect and chat, even if we're just hot dropping or podcasting. Doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking we could do this call right over Warzone if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> just
0: be playing the whole time.
1: <laughs> might need to be a little loud. It'd probably be way more obscenities to you, but
0: oh, there would be way more. That yeah, was bullshit. great, man.
1: But, yeah, I echo your sentiment. It's good to just continue to catch up and shoot the breeze and kind of relive some some cool moments and and honestly, some stuff that I haven't really talked about too much. Um, Just for whatever reason, I think you know this is kind of a an avenue for us to open up a little bit and chat and and share the good and maybe the, the challenges and all that and just kind of have that that dialogue. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely and. Thanks everyone that's been listening. This is one of the longer episodes I've ever done, so I appreciate it if you made it all the way through. If you're listening on Spotify, drop a review. If you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe. Other than that, we'll see you next time.